Matthew chapter 19. Here we're going to find Jesus' definition of marriage, just in case somebody is wondering. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that it is he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Well, the first thing I would like you to notice before we begin discussing adultery is how in verse 5 Jesus asserts that the very reason that God created us male and female is for the purpose of marriage. There would be no marriage otherwise. It's one reason, by the way, you don't see in Scripture, Scripture says that angels do not marry nor are they given in marriage. They do not procreate. The female gender was not created until Genesis 1 verse 22 when God created her to bring her to Adam that they might marry. A man shall be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There exists no, no version, no option of same-sex marriage in the Bible folks. In fact, Christians should actually refrain from using such nomenclature. We really should not be saying things such as gay marriage, because it is not marriage. It's not marriage at all. That's not an adjective that you use to describe marriage. Uh, The New Testament refers to things such as homosexuality as a degrading passion. Again, this is the New Testament. Indecent, unnatural, committed by one with a depraved mind. It's not marriage, folks. In fact, Romans 1 verse 32 tells us that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, meaning they don't only practice them, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So Romans chapter 1 doesn't only condemn those who practice homosexuality, but those who give approval to such practice. Um, Fortunately, such sins are not unforgivable, folks. If you repent and trust in Christ for your salvation. For, for, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 reminds the church, such were some of you, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in our God. 
Uh, so I want you to know today that this is not going to be a diatribe against homosexuality and every celebrity politician or other clergy member who might approve of it. That's not what is intended for today. That might be another day, a different passage, a different text. But to consider adultery, the act of adultery, it must be understood that marriage is defined by Jesus as the spiritual and physical joining of one man and one woman for life. For life. It doesn't matter if you possess a government-issued certificate that says marriage on the top. That document doesn't mean anything. Whether it is two men, two women, one man with multiple women, whatever other scenario may be concocted by men that describe sexual immorality, that's not marriage. That is not marriage, for it is God who defines marriage. Not Congress, not the White House, not the Supreme Court. God defines marriage. And the evidence in the Bible, including the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, is consistent. Morality hasn't changed. God has not authorized any redefinition of marriage. But we can all take a deep breath. We can all take a deep breath. Uh, There's nothing in your past that we're going to discuss today that is unpardonable as an act of sin, that that you cannot be cleansed from by the faith uh, in Christ It's already been washed away for many of us who have trusted in Him, for all who have trusted in Him. And if you have not, uh, it can be washed away today, anything in your past. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, folks. And we've all been sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But since we have been washed by His blood, since we have been reborn by the Holy Spirit, our minds think differently now. We, we no longer condone sinful behavior that we might have taken part of at one time. Maybe something we previously practiced. Our spirit, our mind thinks differently now. We align with the Word of God. And then we move forward. And then we move forward from there. We can't go back into our past and change it. We can't go back in time and change what we have done previous to becoming a Christian. So one principle that I'd like you to to understand today as we begin, and it will follow through to the end of this passage, is that the trajectory of our faith, it's linear. That means it moves in a straight line. From here forward, we gain biblical knowledge and understanding, and we correct our behavior going forward. Uh, There's no returning to undo what has been done, and we don't have to. Thankfully, we don't have to go into the past and undo what's been done because Christ has made all things new. And understanding God's grace in redeeming our past, our sinful mistakes, is incredibly important. Incredibly important today because homosexuality isn't the only sinful threat to American families. Folks, another very harmful sinful threat to our families hits much closer to home hits closer to home to a lot of us this is going to kind of hurt it's hit home close to me as well in my family in my extended family because the institutions of marriage and of family suffer even more greatly from a low view of marriage 
one that contributes to adultery and then ends in divorce. You know, it's not the most recent redefinition of marriage that is the greatest threat uh, to family in America. It is a cultural flippancy towards marriage that is the primary source of our family problems today. A degrading of the institution of marriage. Um, Adultery, which often ends in divorce, not always, but often does, it's a greater contributor to the decline of marriage and family than even homosexuality. Adultery, likewise, is a manifestation of sexual immorality, but it's exceedingly more common than lesbianism. Exceedingly common. Do you follow me here? As far as the rate of one versus how often another occurs? In in fact, sexual immorality between heterosexual men and women, married and unmarried, is the top contributor to our nation's just obliterating the Sixth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not murder. I decided to invert the Sixth and Seventh Commandments in order here because adultery is fuels the the most common uh, occurrence or, or, or is the most common contributor to murder in our culture. And I'm not talking about gun violence, folks. With sexual immorality being by far the greatest contributor to abortion in our country, we need to embrace this command as Christians, thou shalt not commit adultery. Because the devastating impact it has on our society is ripping us apart. Sex outside of marriage. And the consequences of adultery, they're not isolated to abortion. It goes on from there. It results in unwed mothers who are trying to care for their children who become financially dependent on an increasingly strained system. They can't take care of them all. Or it causes a single or divorced mother to work long hours trying to care for them the best way that she can, being a sole provider to young girls and young boys, lacking a father at home, who therefore then turn around both the young ladies and the young boys, search out that embrace of that man that was never there. A substitute to a father's warm embrace, and they're searching elsewhere in our culture because the dads aren't home. And fatherless households, they are the greatest contributor to America's family problems. So so dads, this this weighs heavily on us, the men, the leaders of the home. Whose responsibility is it to raise their children? The systems? No. The father and the mother, right? Folks, if some had their way parents would begin to hand their babies off directly from the delivery room into the hands of the government so that the government could raise them up for them. Probably freeing up the schedules of unwed fathers and unwed mothers to compound the problem by doing it all over again. And the result are teenage girls, young girls, young women, yearning to experience what that is like to have a man's affection. And the same with young boys, never given the attention by a father. They seek the attention of a male. 
And for that reason, the majority will never wait until marriage to have sex. The majority in America never will. And the result is that most are going to enter marriage with baggage, with emotional baggage, with physical baggage, and never really uh, plan on clinging to their spouse for life. Most going in don't even think about lifetime commitment anymore. Um, you know, people who teach homiletics, that is, that's preaching. You see, it's, it's helpful if in the first five minutes you can create a need. What more does our culture need today than mothers and fathers sticking together for life? What greater need could there be in our culture? I'll give you my story just briefly. I don't want to make this about me, but uh, my mother, who was married to my dad for 50 years, and uh, in fact, by the way, Doug and Tina Buchanan are here today, Pastor Doug and his wife, they just celebrated 50 years, so they need, a, they need some applause. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, but my mom and dad, right before he died, just a couple months before, celebrated their 50th. But my mom, previous to that, had a husband who was unfaithful. And they had four older children. And mom had to leave him. He was in the military and would not remain faithful. It would not work out. And later she found my dad. My dad then had two more. So me and my next older sister um, have four step-siblings. And it was never, never did end up being a completely harmonious family because there is a different dad in the picture at Christmas for them. A different dad... Uh, on Thanksgiving for them. And in fact, they were a bit older than us, but even at our mother's funeral, happened a couple of years ago, when it came to the day before the funeral where you think the family's going to be together, me and my other youngest sister who were from my dad, and mom and dad were great parents, got together at one point, and then a couple of the others went over to their dad's family. So even the day before mother's funeral, it's still there. It's that's that, that damage that was done more than 50 years previous to that still lingers. A lot of us know what this is about. Fortunately, God redeems situations. And because of the very real damage of sexual immorality, including adultery, Christ declares that from the beginning God made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So if Christians don't want their, their families to become uh, more statistics, you know, Christ suggests you better cling for life. You better hang in there. Uh, and fixing this country, it, it's that straightforward, folks. It is that straightforward. Men and women waiting to have sex until they are married, and then mothers and fathers personally instilling morality into their children at early ages and training them up, not expecting the government to do it for us, actually not allowing the government to do it for us. And you might ask, you might ask, this is like, man, what if I already screwed up? I mean, what, what if my past, what if everything's already messed up? You know, few of us hasn't screwed up in one way or another. We, we'll get to that a little later. 
But if you really want to see your household transformed, transformed by Christ uh, into a place of stability, one of peace, one of financial um, accord, joy, there's no magic pill. There is no magic pill that you take. It is achieved through the, the decisions that you make going forward from today. That's a fact. I'm going to share a little advice from my old pastor, Tommy Nelson, out of Denton Bible Church. He was, he was notorious. Actually, he's never known for, being, for using finesse in biblical counseling, if you know what I mean. No real finesse with him. And I never thought I'd actually share this, but I now see it has some applicable value. You know, when, when young men would schedule counseling with Tom, he tells this story, and say, you know, Tom, I need help. My life is all screwed up. I don't know what to do. Tom would reply to them and say, well, quit screwing up. That'll be $50. (laughs) That's counseling. And sometimes what we need to be told more than anything is just stop screwing up. Just stop today screwing up. And for the Christian especially, Being morally faithful to your spouse, that's not burdensome. That's not a heavy burden to carry. And you know, I've mentioned previously how these Ten Commandments we've been studying, these timeless ten, are all reinforced in the New Testament by Jesus and the disciples. Uh, Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Of course, a couple weeks ago we learned that we rest uh, entirely in Christ and His work on the cross. He is our Sabbath rest. So the timeless ten are still in complete effect today. In 1 John 5, 3, I think this is my new, my new favorite verse now after this series started. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. How hard is it to not steal? That's just not hard, folks. None of these commandments are very hard. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That's coming up in a couple weeks. That one's a little harder. Facebook and everything going on. We'll talk about that later. Forget it. (laughs) Don't have time for that. But they aren't hard for somebody indwelt by the Holy Spirit to keep. And Scripture assures us that. Yeah, I I am shocked. I'm shocked in in what we read today, the resources, uh, what we see on uh, online conferences, videos, and other things. Uh, The number of pastors who suggest commands like these uh, for the Christian no longer apply. Oh, that's the old Ten Commandments. That's Old Testament. That's got nothing to do with us today. That's the law, they say. And they say, well, we don't achieve salvation by keeping those. They didn't in the Old Testament either. They were saved by faith just as we are. It was never a path of being saved. But the Apostle Paul assures us in Romans 13, 9 that we are as morally obligated to keep these as any previous generation. These are God's timeless commands. They're not mine. They're not mine. This provides me of a great opportunity. This is an opportunity I've been waiting for for five years. Do I as a pastor... Do I have to have experienced a divorce in order to exhort you that God does not want you to divorce? No, that wouldn't even make sense, would it? 
That, that's a big misnomer that is going around today in Christian circles and, and other circles, just societal circles, that unless I've experienced your experience, then I have no standing to speak to it. You'll understand in a minute. Be careful before answering this. This is a minefield. Could turn out to be a minefield anyhow. Does a Christian have to experience a condition before speaking authoritatively to it? No. Obviously not. Did Paul have to experience marriage before he could speak authoritatively to marriage? No. Neither did Timothy, who he put in charge in the church in Ephesus. Uh, Surely not. In fact, Paul commanded those who never marry if they are to secure undistracted service to the Lord. That was a commendation to ministry if you so have that giftedness where you can remain to undistracted devotion of the Lord. So you didn't have to marry in order to speak to those things. Um, Must I experience homosexual urges in order to speak to it authoritatively from God's word? No. No. That's a satanic lie to suggest that nobody can say anything until they've walked a mile in my shoes. You won't find that in the Bible. You won't find that in the Bible. It's not biblical. Why? Because Paul assured Corinth that there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common among men. There are no urges, there are no sinful tendencies that the rest of us just can't understand. No, we live in the sinful flesh. We understand. We understand lust. We understand desires of the world. We understand perfectly well... None of us have to step into your shoes to understand. Paul assured Timothy what we needed was a a strong and firm grasp of Scripture, an honest grasp of Scripture in order to speak to things, because that's the authority. Here's some other good ones. Do I need to, because we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks as well, a couple more commandments coming up. Do I need to experience unemployment in order to tell you that Scripture says you need to get off your lazy behind and go to work? No, I've experienced unemployment, but I don't have to because Scripture exhorts us to that. Do I need to have my own children to tell you that yours are being disobedient? No, why not? Because I was a child. I know what disobedience is. I remember. If you're a stumbling parent, struggling with things, do I, my wife, even someone like Ruth who's single, uh, Do we have to have experienced uh, directly being a parent in order to help you along with advice from Scripture? No. We don't need that experience in order to share with you what God's Word says. Because if you're a parent who has gotten off track and misguided, and if your kids are on a really bad trajectory in life, your personal experience already demonstrates that it hasn't counted. It's not working. So experience in that regard is not important to have. We all need corrective guidance from Scripture. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. So when it comes to a failing marriage and the effect that it has on kids, please don't say today as you leave, well, that pastor, he just hasn't experienced what I experienced. He just doesn't know what I'm talking about, the stress of our family or my personal urges. That doesn't work. You can't flush that with Scripture because nobody here has to walk a mile in your shoes to understand what God's Word says. When it comes to adulterous behavior, Scripture says, stop screwing up. Stop screwing up. 
The biblical exhortation to marital fidelity is not burdensome. Proverbs 5, uh, 5 verse 15 declares, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Thou shalt not commit adultery means we don't pursue sexual gratification outside of marriage or prior to marriage. Period. Period. Because doing so dissolves the intimacy that's to be enjoyed between only one man and one woman for life. It dissolves it. It destroys it. They are to cling together till death till uh, do we part. And the principle that includes anything that that puts us on a pathway of exploiting sexuality, abusing sexuality, within our marriage or previous to marriage, it's off limits, folks. You know, the various avenues or channels for pornography today, it's over the top. It is over the top. They're off limits. Slipping out of town with the guys for a weekend of fun, off limits, unless it's really fishing. Then you can Getting away with the girls for a bachelorette party in Vegas. Nothing good comes out of these. Nothing good comes out of these. Um, everybody, everybody knows that. Believer and unbeliever know that. Know that. Um, and, and for that reason, restrictions are usually placed, at least loosely, anyhow, still in our culture, to people who are married. The, the so-called out-of-town fun, acting uh, promiscuously, that's socially reserved for people before they get married, they say, for single folks. That's supposedly so you can get it all out of your system before you get married. You heard that one before? But the reality is that being sexually immoral before marriage and, and letting loose in college or whatever they call it, it's not a way of working it out of your system. It is a way of working it into your system. That's the honest truth. You know, people used to dismiss such behavior as sowing wild oats. That's a most ridiculous analogy. You know, I grew up on a farm. Do you know what you get when you sow wild oats? Later on, more wild oats. That's a fact. In pornography, lewd behavior, graphic television, acts of sexual experimentation... They're sowing seeds of adultery into your marriage before you even uh, commit to your spouse. They're in your heart and your faculties before you ever walk down the aisle. And, and those experiences contribute to ongoing thoughts in, in the back of your mind and greater behavior that are not easily shed after marriage. So what do you do with wild oats? Oh, you hit them with Roundup. You burn them out. No wild oats. You know, be, behavior sown before marriage creeps into marriage. Most of us, if we're, if we're honest, know that, right? It has the capacity to creep into marriage. You don't change immediately at marriage. That's why some husbands still leave the toilet seat up. Not me. <laughs> Not me. 
Some men here are still struggling amongst us with lustful behavior that we cultivated as boys, as small boys, just like you can cultivate behavior for the good. It can be cultivated for sin. Uh, But this is important. Does a lustful thought, does that equate to adultery? That's something that's suggested these days. Uh, Some think it does. I don't think that is what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, when he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, that sometimes causes a woman who has found a magazine in her husband's drawer or perhaps a, a photo on, on, a, on a screen today, that's more common, to conclude, well, that's grounds for divorce. I've had someone come into my office and say that this is grounds for divorce. It is sin, and it is grounds for intervention. But adultery is constituted as a physical sexual act. It's not a thought. If everyone was able to call for a divorce because their spouse had a lustful thought, that wouldn't be good. That wouldn't be good. Rather, Jesus seems to be warning us to beware of the lust that's lurking in every person's heart. Beware of that. Don't think that you're immune. Just because someone else got sucked into it, don't think that your heart wouldn't do the same. What seems he's saying is that looking with a woman at lust sows the the wild oats of adultery in a heart. Therefore, he declares in that same passage not to pursue divorce, But instead, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it far from you. For it is better for you to lose one of those parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He's talking about an intervention. The modern equivalent today, you want to know what it is? Seen in the movie Fireproof. Have you seen that one? Where a husband addicted to the internet uh, internet pornography, Kurt Cameron, have you seen that one? When he finds out his wife is near leaving him because of his activity on the internet with lustful images, and she's about to pack up and leave uh, because their intimacy was superseded by something on the, on the video screen, he takes his computer out in the backyard with a baseball bat and it beats it to death. He does. He takes it out. He gets it out of his life. If you haven't seen that movie, you should watch it. It's good. Um, A generation ago, a man might have burned a stack of magazines. Today, a woman might deactivate her social media because she has men approaching her with private messaging, sewing things into her mind about her, between her and her spouse. Um, You got to get it out. You got to get out of your life. And Jesus' warning is not only for husbands and wives, but Jesus says for everyone who lusts with a heart. Um, I wouldn't doubt there's someone here today, maybe more than one today, who needs to take immediate action after we leave here today. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of that at all. If it is a screen on your phone that's causing you to stumble, get a flip phone. Get a flip phone. Cancel the subscription to cable television. Can the television. There's not that much on there. It needs to be seen. That's not extreme. That's not extreme to prevent what could happen down the road. If you lust, you must work on a computer. That's a tough one. But if you can't, uh, 
can't navigate that, get Covenant Eyes installed on your computer. That is a program, a monitoring program on computers. And you make someone else an accountability partner that can see everything that you visited. They can just check in from time to time and they'll get red flagged. If you're having trouble with that, get Covenant Eyes installed and make your accountability partner your mother-in-law. I think some people would rather gouge their eye out. (laughs) If you are a young lady or woman who's using social and other media to constantly draw attention to yourself and to your body uh, through images, stop screwing up. Stop screwing up. Because if you have to draw attention to your body from strangers online, you know, first... Is that the type of husband that you would want to attract? Secondly, do you think that that yearning for a man's attention or other men's attention, do you think that's going to go away after you get married? Or is it going to continue? What about all the other women's husbands that are being attracted to you through those images that you're putting up online? drawing attention from them rather than pointing them back to their wives. You know, please, dare not believe, folks. Dare not believe in uh, some aspects of this Me Too era that God doesn't hold ladies responsible for how they present themselves and how they dress. Don't believe that. Don't believe that is a lie. Um, we're surely not pilgrims. Don't want to be. Don't want to be. And the def- definition of modesty, that is culturally influenced. Every culture throughout history, whether you go to the Victorian era or the era of Christ or today, that's culturally influenced what modesty is. It isn't the, isn't the final say, but it is influenced. Um, but don't think, ladies, that you can dress however you want and that it is men's responsibility to look away. That's just, that's unfair and it's ridiculous. Scripture places the responsibility of modesty on the woman. Um, Do I endorse a trend towards burkinis? No. Those things are awful. You ever seen those? The full, forget it. Um, I'm not offended by a tasteful swimsuit, those types of things. I don't sense a problem here at church. Really, I don't. Thankful that really nothing here comes to my mind at church. At gym, I wonder. At the gym, I wonder sometimes. I really do. Uh, There remains a lot of liberty in dress, but the reality is, this is the truth. Most people look a lot better the more clothes they put on. (laughs) That's a fact. And the seeds of adultery, not always, but most often... The wild oats are sown through the eye. It matters not whether you're married or single or plan to eventually get married. Root them out, folks. Root them out. Um, well, if the lust of the eye is where adultery usually begins, let's just take one moment to discuss where it so often ends, where adultery ends, and why sexual immorality so often leads to divorce. Um, our command today is thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not, thou shalt not divorce. 
We're going to cover the topic of divorce directly after we return to our study of Luke in chapter 16 in the fall after this series. We'll step right into adultery there. Um, Just a few departing words here. Christ recognized under the law, Deuteronomy chapter 24, that there was only ever one qualification for divorce. And the tradition of some Pharisees had authorized divorcing their spouse for any reason at all. There's one tradition of the Pharisees, basically it said, for whatever reason, that you find uh, unpleasing about her. They would have they fit in perfectly in America today, just divorcing for any reason at all. They were original architects of no-fault divorce. You know what that is, right? That you don't have to claim the, the spouse did anything. You can just go in and they'll just write you a divorce. Quality of cooking was good enough reason. So in Matthew 19, they asked Jesus, you know, are you with us on this? Are you in our camp? You follow us. And in verse 5, Jesus answers, no. Matthew 19, verse 5, from the beginning, one man, one wife, they're no longer two, but they are one flesh. And one flesh for life. So they asked then an interesting question. Why did Moses command divorce? They're citing our earlier scripture reading from Deuteronomy 24, uh, where we see the only condition that Moses permitted divorce is when a husband found an indecency in his wife. And that Hebrew word, as we said earlier, if you came in late, I'll say it again, that word literally means nakedness. Especially of, I'm glad we dismiss the children, to children's church, especially of the genital area, a nakedness in his wife. The identical Hebrew word is used throughout the Old Testament to denote sexual immorality. That was the condition given. And divorce in such a situation was never required, was never required by Moses. But when a husband had discovered his wife indecent, and because of the hardness of his heart, that he could not bring himself to forgive her. No forgiveness is going to be uh, dispensed here. He was permitted to divorce her. He was allowed to. Through a certificate of divorce, he officially declared and publicly that that woman is intolerably indecent to me. Follow me? He's declaring that woman indecent. The law had a provision for this. Now, was this something that Moses dreamed up? I get this sometimes. Um, Some make that mistake. But this was not initiated by Moses. This wasn't just Moses. It is what God sanctioned through the writing of Moses. Uh, It's the same principle today when we say things like, well, the Apostle Paul tells us. It's not the Apostle Paul. It is the authority of Scripture through the uh, inspired writings of Paul that are the authority. So it's not just Paul um, speaking. And uh, it's, it's a figure of speech. Moses didn't go rogue in Deuteronomy 24. It was God's provision. Moses wrote it. That's why they say, why did Moses allow this? Um, So all Jesus does in Matthew 19, 8, he keeps things pretty simple, is reinforce what God originally declared. 
Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you, should say God permitted you, to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Meaning, divorce was never the intention of marriage from the get-go. That was never the plan. God's intent from Genesis 2 verse 24 was always one woman and one wife clinging together for dear life. But ever since the fall, sexual immorality has, has far too often polluted the marriage union. The one flesh union. And once that occurs, it's no longer the same pure union of one man and one wife. The marriage bed, it is said in the Old Testament, has become defiled. And, and when there is adultery added to that marriage covenant, it's no longer one flesh. You have those two, one flesh, another has been brought into the relationship. So what Jesus declares in Matthew 19, verse 9, is exactly what God declared. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. Old Testament, the word was nakedness. Except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Sexual immorality defiles the one man, one woman union. Nothing stops the husband or in our case today, spouse as well, nothing stops the husband from reacting like God and forgiving. Nothing stops that. But once a husband had discovered his marriage bed was defiled, he was allowed to dissolve that union and send her away. Um, And he is, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, he is free then to marry a new wife. Moses says, the whole purpose of the concept of writing a divorce, the certificate of divorce, um, with that, there would, uh, it was always for remarriage. The reason that there was a certificate of divorce written was so that those could go and remarry. If God himself did not ever recognize divorce, he would have never told them to write out a certificate of divorce. There are principles in that that seem to escape the YouTube theologians. People are getting caught up in that, and they go on YouTube, and they watch a 10-minute video from some guy who doesn't explain it through, and he gets them all riled up about things. We'll talk about that in Luke chapter 16. Uh, But here's the caveat to Deuteronomy 24 that nobody ever touches. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 4, is the husband who divorced his wife is he permitted to remarry her again? No. The answer is no. Why not? Because he has publicly declared her intolerably indecent to himself where he could not find it in his heart to forgive her. It was the reason that he gave for dissolving the marriage in the first place. So Moses writes, you shall not marry her again. Since you already declared her indecent, that, he says, is an abomination to the Lord because it makes a mockery of God's provision for divorce. It mocks that. He declared she's intolerably indecent. He should have just stayed with her, not come back later and remarry again. And Jesus himself um, says that this exemption remains in effect ever since Moses. No change in this whatsoever. Well, under the new covenant, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul, 
I mean God, is going to provide believers with one additional exemption. Can God do that? We find, uh, we're going to find out in the Gospel of Luke when we return that he does. I think we've already sufficiently discovered that God has changed things like circumcision and dietary restrictions and even how we observe the Sabbath. Um, scripture declares numerous amendments for the Scripture, so yes, God can do that. But whenever you come across someone that's very illegalistic with divorce, um, they almost always say that God does not recognize any subsequent marriages at all. That's what you normally run into when you run into these folks. No subsequent remarriages are permitted. They sometimes suggest that the only remedy to your situation is to go back to your original spouse, no matter how many times you've remarried or how many kids have been born in the meantime. This is more common than you know. You need to return to your first wife to make all things right, they say. But what does Moses actually say? No. No, you do not. And the answer is understanding and receiving God's grace and moving forward. You can't go back and redo what you've done. Many years have passed. You know, if you have questions, please come and see me on this. This this is tough stuff. Talk to Pastor Weiler. We've worked through this multiple times here. Um, This is a troubling uh, thing for a lot of folks because the rate of uh, the rate of divorce in America pastors are encountering this all the time and people are coming in and say well this YouTube channel told me this and it's just all over the map all over the charts if you're midlife and you got bumps in your rearview mirror you've made mistakes you can't turn back the clock folks you don't have to you don't have to healing comes from recognizing that these things in your life were a result of sin result of sin but christ is faithful to forgive us from all sin even divorce and then we move forward clinging for life adultery and divorce are not unpardonable sins you have to move forward wherever you find yourself today if you're a teenager or a person looking towards marriage choose carefully choose carefully um for those consequences of adultery are massive. We'll learn that next week. Did Christ reverse our past? Or does he transform our future? Did his bride, that's every single one of us, the church, did his bride remain a spotless virgin before he sent his spirit to baptize us into his church? Not hardly. And he loves us anyway, folks. He cleanses his bride from unrighteousness going forward. From this point forward. Um, What do you do if your past got all screwed up? Stop screwing up. Move forward. We forgive our current spouse as Christ forgives us. And we can purify our marriages starting today and move forward. Final passage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, 
having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their wives, their own wives, as their own bodies. He who loves his own uh, wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does his church, because we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Be like Christ. Jesus took something that was impure, his bride, and he made it pure. Your marriage, wherever it's at, and your family, take something that has been impure and make it pure for his glory. Folks, if you had a recent divorce, you're wondering about being reconciled to a wife or husband that had never remarried again because of that Deuteronomy 24 thing, come and see me. We'll talk about it. There's just too many complex situations to make a blanket announcement. But don't let that throw you on Deuteronomy 24. Let's pray.